if we can identify some of these tricks that cancer is pulling to either grow, to travel, or to hide from the immune system, can we then leverage that and say, okay, we can, we can flip that switch and let the immune system find you again. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today my guest is Samik Roy Chowdhury. Samik was the guest on the very first episode of this podcast, and the topic then was precision cancer medicine. Today, Samik will update us on the progress being made in this vital area of cancer research and treatment, and he'll also tell us a little bit about his new book, which is called Precision Cancer Medicine, Challenges and Opportunities. Welcome to the podcast, Samik. Hey, thank you for having me back. Looking forward to, to sharing uh, what's going on in precision cancer medicine. Is this like the first stop on your worldwide book tour? Uh, that's funny <laughs> that you ask. Yeah, we, we recently organized a, uh, uh, a textbook on this topic. Uh, you know, precision cancer medicine uh, is not brand new, but it sort of became reinvigorated about uh, 12 years ago. Uh, through technologies that have enabled us to really look at genetics at a whole new level. Uh, and uh, a lot has happened. And so a couple of years ago, uh, uh, we and others decided uh, to kind of put together sort of a, what is the current you know, progress and what are the exciting new things happening in precision cancer medicine. And so uh, that we just released that textbook. Uh, we invited about a dozen researchers, uh, you know, cutting edge scientists uh, in their field, um, many young investigators who are just, you know, doing great work on different topics and, and ask them to kind of provide a, a, an update and, you know, what's the field look like? What's the landscape look like? Where are we going? And uh, so a lot of things are happening and, uh, you know, hopefully that means good news for our patients too. So that sounds exactly what we're going to talk about today. Uh, where we're going with precision cancer medicine and what's new. But first, before we get there, give us a little recap from that first episode of what is precision cancer medicine. And I think also there's, I don't want to say confusion, but just the difference at, with and how it connects with immunotherapy. Yeah. So, so precision cancer medicine is not new. Uh, it is the idea that we can personalize cancer therapy for an individual patient. And it could be the type of cancer, the location of cancer, a genetic feature of the cancer, uh, some pattern that tells us this therapy or the next therapy is the right therapy for you. And so precision cancer medicine, again, is not new. It's just that along the way, the tools we have on our tool belt to make those decisions about what is the right therapy for you have grown. And so, you know, I would say that amongst the first personalized therapies, uh, maybe the idea of blocking the effects of estrogen or blocking the effects of testosterone are some of the first so-called precision medicines for breast cancer and prostate cancer. So those happened and, and were discovered in the 1950s and 60s. And really, when people who have breast cancer with a hormone-positive type of breast cancer could benefit from depriving those patients from estrogen, so depleting estrogen. 
And, but that wasn't using fancy genetics and fancy computers uh, or other uh, special uh, testing. Uh, and so you know, advance you know, 50 years later uh, in the 2000s, uh, around 2002, 2004, was the explosion of genetics technology that really allowed us to be able to look at cancer in an unprecedented way. And it's still getting better and faster and more high tech. And to give you an idea, you know, you know, in the 1990s, to look at one person's entire collection of all their genes, uh, so three billion letters or so, uh, it would have cost almost a billion dollars or so. And today, we can look at someone's cancer genes for around $1,000 to $2,000, $5,000, depending on what kind of testing you're doing. And so the scalability, the cost uh, ha has changed, and we are now looking at cancer uh, in a different way. And so today, most patients with advanced cancer get some kind of testing. So this um, genetic coding that you can now decode, that allows you to discover the specific genetic mutation that is causing these cancer cells to grow out of control. Exactly. So we, I may meet 10 patients with the same type of cancer, but when we look at their genetic testing, it tells us something more. And so beyond what kind of cancer, what is the genetics of someone's cancer? And can we tailor a therapy for that specific genetic finding? And we can't always do that yet. So we're discovering genetic changes, and we don't always know what they mean or how we could exploit them for one person's cancer to help treat them. Uh, but every year uh, since the 2005-ish, uh, genetics is allowing us to view cancer better and, and, and more uh, uh, broadly, and we're identifying new ways to treat those genetic markers. New drugs are coming. Uh, and so it's very exciting. Uh, it's a great uh, uh, opportunity to impact cancer care uh, through research. So, so if I get this right, if I'm understanding this correctly, each month, each year, you and others are discovering new genetic mutations, and you have to first discover the mutation to then create a drug that targets it, either a chemotherapy or immunotherapy drug that targets it and will be effective in stopping that cancer. So, and I know you do this, how do you discover a new genetic mutation? That's a really good question, and I think you, you summarized it nicely. You know, making that discovery uh, is challenging, uh, and it's like looking for a needle in a haystack, but every time you pull out something, it's just another piece of hay, and you're just pulling hay out, and, nope, oh, this isn't it, this isn't it, this isn't it. And every time you pull that hay out, um, you're asking, is this important? Is this important for that person's cancer? Does it make their cancer grow? How do I prove it? And if it does make their cancer grow, well, how do I take advantage of it? How, how is this something that's a weak point or a susceptibility for that person's cancer? How do we test for this marker? How do we test and find this in other patients? What therapy can we use to exploit it? And so these are all the research questions that have to happen when that needle is pulled from the haystack. And at the end of these questions, we have then create a clinical trial. 
And so we write a new clinical trial, we find the drug, we develop the drug, we find a partner from pharma companies. Uh, so that, that's, that's the, the point where we translate or bring that research finding into a novel therapy for patients who have that needle in a haystack. And uh, that's happening again and again throughout uh, the country and the world through cancer research and uh, uh, genomics is driving that process. And uh, it's a lot of analysis of big data tied to biology research that's more traditional. Uh, And uh, the end result is new therapies for patients that benefit them. Now, you've said we a lot that we as in W-E, as in a team of people, and I know because I've been there and met some of the other people in your lab, the we that you're talking about, you have a whole team in the Roy Chowdhury lab that works together on precision cancer medicine, on identifying the genetic mutations in your patients, and I know you're working on discovering new ones, sort of help people understand how cancer lab works and what your lab in particular specializes in? That's a great question. And uh, uh, a research lab and team is a multidisciplinary group of people with different skill sets from biology to genetics to computer science uh, to diagnostic tests uh, and Our goal is to prove a genetic mutation can make someone's cancer grow, can be susceptible to a new therapy, and that that therapy could be safe. And so that's what our research team of about a dozen people uh, do. Uh, We also have student researchers who are part of that process. And so I think the fundamental uh, rules that we have to make these discoveries are multidisciplinary research, a open collaborative culture for new ideas, fostering young scientists in that culture, and you know, looking for the next aha moment. And again, we're pulling hay out of a stack of hay, wondering which one of those is the right needle in that haystack. And your lab, and I don't know how many labs do this, but you're also an MD, and I think you have at least maybe one other MD in your lab. So you not only do research, you see patients and treat patients. Is that how rare is that, or is that a common thing in the labs, the different labs? That's right. Yeah, we we were very uh, uh, purposeful about the way we built and grew our lab. We did not want it to be a a research lab trying to do genetics research only. We did not want to be a research lab trying to do computer science with big data only. We did not want to be a lab that only develops diagnostic tests that are ready for clinical grade use. We do not want to be a lab that only develops clinical trials. We do not want to be a lab that only runs a study to collect samples from patients and and kind of collect their their histories. We wanted to tie all of those together. So we see patients, we register them in a study, we do genomics, we look at their tumors, we look at their blood, we do big data science, we do test development, and we do clinical trials development. And by tying those five pieces and more together, we think we can solve more problems than not, rather than specializing in only one area, we brought multiple specializations together into a team environment with an open culture 
and again, an open-mindedness to new ideas, looking for that aha moment. So we look at lots of different mutations. And, and so, um, you know, again, the aha moment can come from anywhere. And so, you know, uh, one example uh, is a marker called microsatellite instability, uh, or also called MSI. Uh, and that was a marker that we were involved in, in researching and describing and recognizing. And uh, just two, two year and a half years ago, uh, uh, a, a therapy called immunotherapy was approved for patients who have this marker. And what this marker means is that that person's tumor has a lot more gene mutations than typical. And we call that phenomenon hypermutation or lots of mutations. And by having so many mutations, it's possible that their immune system could more easily recognize and try to reject their tumor. They just need a little bit of help. And it turns out that new immunotherapies can be used to help unlock or unleash their immune system and go after their own tumors and reject them. And so that's one example of, of a marker that we've been involved in or a genetic marker. Uh, and, and again, we're always looking for the next marker. We continue to do research on that marker and describe it and, and find better ways to, to care for those patients. Uh, but as we test and evaluate more patients, and get access to more big data from other centers and other networks. We're looking for patterns and looking for, again, another needle in a haystack. And you know, one of our goals is every year, can we make a similar discovery? Can we find another marker that can lead to a test, that can lead to a therapy that can help patients? Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Samik's going to give us some examples of some of the things they found in the haystack and some of the markers that you're looking at and how that's going to impact patients. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Samik Roy Chowdhury, and he's filling us in on some of the advances in, in precision cancer medicine. And Samik, you sort of hinted at and promised to give us some examples of some of the markers and targets you and your lab are investigating and, and finding? Yeah, so uh, one of the uh, markers is a gene and family of genes called fibroblast growth factor receptor. And it also is abbreviated FGFR. And we've been doing clinical trials, diagnostic test development, and actually treating patients now uh, in clinical trials. Uh, for this gene marker. Uh, it can be found in any kind of cancer. It tends to be more commonly seen in ca cancers of the bladder or cancers of the liver or bile ducts. And so we've gotten maybe six clinical trials that have opened over the past five years. Uh, clinical trials take three to six years to run and complete and collect data, as well as are all ongoing. 
And you know what's exciting for us is that you're now starting to see some of these FGFR smart drugs that inhibit FGFR. Uh, so the mutations make the FGFR on, and we're trying to turn it off so that it, we can control cancer. And just in the past year now, we've seen two different drugs approved by the FDA because of these clinical trials. Uh, and we continue to be involved in some of the studies, uh, especially for bile duct cancer. Uh, we have several studies for those patients. And we also have studies for patients where FGFR is uncommon, but it's still there. And so say, for example, maybe we can find 1% of breast cancer to have an FGFR mutation. There won't be many clinical trials that could ever be done just for breast cancer. There's just not enough patients when you look at 1% of a disease. So what we have done is created something called a basket trial. A basket clinical trial sounds like a basket. We put together different cancers in a basket, but they have one thing in common, FGFR. And so in this clinical trial, we might have patients with stomach cancer, breast cancer, uterus cancer, cancer of the tonsils. And as long as they have a mutation that turns FGFR on, they can qualify. And so this is leaning towards this idea that the genetics is perhaps more important than where the cancer came from, or perhaps equally important. And so while most clinical trials focus on one cancer type, this is an example of a precision medicine trial really focused on the genes that are disrupted. And so FGFR continues to be an area uh, where we are growing uh, in terms of what we understand, uh, who can benefit. We're discovering even new mutations in FGFR. Uh, so there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, but the good news is we have patients now who when they developed their metastatic cancer, got to a point where no therapies were working and they were told there was less than three months to live. We are now treating these patients on these clinical trials for two years, for three years, controlling their cancer, extending their lives. We're not quite seeing patients cured yet with this therapy, but to, to go from you know, three months to live to two or three years on therapy is pretty remarkable. So what happens in these patients' bodies who have the FGFR that enables, I'm assuming, that somehow the treatment you give them, the drug, perhaps an immunotherapy, helps their immune system find these FGFR mutations that have been hiding from them? How, how does it work? What happens in so, the so, body? So it's a good question. So, so the FGFR therapies are not quite immune therapy. Uh, they are smart drugs that turn off the FGFR switch. And so by turning off that switch, we sort of cut the supply of electricity. And so if, if the cancer cells don't have electricity, they can't grow, they can't divide, they can't spread. And interesting that you bring up immunotherapy you know, one of the things that's happening for patients who have FGFR positive cancers, we think that this FGFR gene might be immunosuppressive. And so it's possible that some of these patients 
might benefit from the addition of a immune therapy. And so there are new clinical trials uh, ongoing and being developed to treat patients not only with an FGFR inhibitor to turn off FGFR, but also to give them a boost for their immune system with an immune-based therapy. And so both of those are concepts that are happening. And uh, again, the good news is, you know, we have patients who are, who are benefiting for, for one, two, three years and longer um, when they were told that they had nothing left to try. And so we're aiming to bring these drugs uh, uh, to you know, standard of care, and we're aiming to improve upon them too. So, so one of the things that we do is because we do research, in addition to clinical trials, we are studying how well these drugs work. We're also studying when they stop working, which many of them do after a couple years, what do we do next? And so how is their cancer escaping or getting away and becoming resistant to their drug and therapy? And so if we can figure out how they're doing that, can we design a better drug? Can we design a better therapy approach or a combination approach to prevent that resistance from developing? Oh, that's interesting because in an FGFR inhibitor, the, the drug serves as like a kill switch to those cells, but you're saying in some cases over time, the cancer cells figure out how to get around the kill switch. Right. And we call that drug resistance. And, and you know, many, many people may have heard of the idea of antibiotic resistance. You know, we have this idea that we don't want to overprescribe antibiotics because then we are breeding antibiotic resistant bacteria and make, making them harder to treat. And, you know, there's a shortage of antibiotics research for, for, you know, microbes and bacteria. And so the same thing is true in cancer. Uh, and what we want to do is predict and understand how cancer is becoming resistant so we can develop a better drug or a next generation drug against that cancer. Okay. Is, is there another example of either a new target or mutation that you guys in your lab are working on? Yeah, that's a really good uh, question. One of our goals has been to try to identify a new gene or target every year. So we, we want that to be our deliverable of, hey, what are we bringing to patients? We're doing this research in, in the laboratory, combining all of our disciplines, big data, and at the end of the day, the reason we do it, the why, is to help patients uh, and the patients we see. And so our goal is one new target a year. Uh, and sometimes we do better than that, uh, but that's our goal. And, you know, one of our themes of our research and our team has been, you know, we want to do research that's fundamentally sound and innovative, but we want it to help someone tomorrow not 10 years from now. So that's why we have this goal of one a year. And one of the new targets we are investigating is this family of genes involved in the immune system. We kind of talked about immunotherapy a little earlier. So there's been you know, tremendous breakthroughs in therapies involving the immune system. Uh, and, and one of those families of therapies involves something called checkpoints. And a checkpoint is a place where you stop and say, hey, are we doing okay? Are we doing the right thing? 
And then the immune system, what that checkpoint does is, hey, do we need the immune system on or do we need it off? And the reality is if we did not have those checkpoints in our bodies, you and I would always have a fever. We would always be sweaty. We would always be hot because our immune system would be going on unchecked. And so the same is true for cancer. Cancer is tricky. It has found a way to turn on some of these checkpoints to hide from the immune system, to prevent the immune system from finding it. So it's hiding from our immune systems. And so a new family of, of therapies have developed so-called checkpoint inhibitors, which are meant to sort of unleash or release the immune system against cancer. And so some of the observations we have made in genetics is that in some patients, very rare, some of the tumors have many, many copies of some of these checkpoints. And so has the cancer found a way to directly impact the checkpoint by amplifying some of these checkpoints? And so what we are looking to see is, do cancers have genetic mutations in some of these immune checkpoints that allow it to dysregulate the immune system and hide and escape? And so we are using big data uh, from partners uh, that we've collaborated with uh, through networks, and you're pooling data across cancer, across institutions, looking for these events, and they're quite rare. And at the end of the day, even if it's 1% of cancer, if we identify these patients, then they could be candidates for immune therapy that could be very effective to reverse that problem, right? So if cancer is hiding, we can reveal cancer to your immune system by releasing that checkpoint. So that's, that's the new target and project that we are pursuing right now. Is it almost, it sounds like it's a mutation within a mutation. There's the one mutation that's causing the cancer to grow. And then there's the second mutation that allows it to hide and, 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 you know, avoid these checkpoints. That's right. So cancer has to do a couple things to become cancer. And, you know, one of those is acquiring the ability to grow and travel. So you have to grow many, many times and you have to travel throughout the body. Those are different skills and things that a cancer has to do. Another thing a cancer has to do is hide from the immune system. And those could be different mutations, different programs. And so if we can identify some of these tricks that cancer is pulling to either grow, to travel, or to hide from the immune system, can we then leverage that and say, okay, we can, we can flip that switch and let the immune system find you again? Boy, that's why it's, it's so complicated to cure cancer because there's so many different mutations and you're still finding them every day and you're finding mutations within mutations and sometimes the mutations become resistant to the drug. So it's quite the challenge you have. Well, one of the other challenges uh, that we are coming across is that some of these are quite rare. And so how do we develop studies and clinical trials to study a finding that could be what we call ultra rare? So how do we manage and deal with ultra-rare genetic mutations in cancer and bring that to those patients? And so one of the things that we are exploring uh, is the idea of a telemedicine clinical research study. 
So can we reach patients across the country through telemedicine so they don't have to travel somewhere to get a therapy? You know, maybe there's only going to be 20 patients ever in this year with the right genetic finding. And, and, and if we can get those patients into the study, we can test our idea, bring them the therapy and prove it and then bring them a, a, a therapy that's going to benefit them just because of their rare mutation. You know, I was going to ask you as my sort of last question to look into the future and what you thought was going to happen. And I think you just sort of gave us a little hint about this ability to find people all over the country through telemedicine, through things like Orion that, that um, is a compilation of, of tumors and using big data to find people. That It sounds like that's the future is this really dying down, diving down into the no routine cancer, every patient is different, gets personalized medicine aspect of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's exciting to find these things that are going to be, you know, individualized and, and can enable a therapy, but the rarer they are, the harder they are to solve now. And so we've got to think of new ways uh, to reach these patients and using technology, big data, telehealth. Uh, these are the tools that we could use to overcome these barriers. And uh, we're not going to let the rarity of a genetic mutation stop us from trying to help those patients. And I take it that's what drives you and your team to do this is to help one patient at a time. That's right. Our goal is to bring a novel therapy to a novel target for patients every year. Okay. So perhaps in a year or two, you'll come back and, and tell us what novel therapies and markers you found. Yeah. Looking forward to it. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.